Section 31 of The Wounded Name by D. K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Eileen. Chapter 9, Part 6. 12. There was an instant's electric silence. What? exclaimed several incredulous and horrified voices from the dais, Monsieur Dondignis among them. Oh, good God! said the Marquis de la Boissière slowly. But Laurent, without waiting for permission, was already back in his place, his elbows on his knees, his head between his fists, heedless of what, under cover of the general sensation, Monsieur Pégolet on the one side was disjointedly asking him, and of de Fresnet swearing below his breath on the other. How ought I to have done it? Ought I to have done it? he was saying to himself. And will he forgive me? And all through the low-voiced conference among the court which followed, and the subdued hum of the audience, he was more and more conscious, and though he dared only glance at it, of the back of that figure in front of him. At first a mag had covered his face. How suppose he did not forgive him? Here was Saul de Gasol getting to his feet at last. I think, gentlemen, that we do not need any more testimony as to Monsieur de la Gaucheterie's conduct after the disaster, and as we now have Monsieur Dondigny's evidence as to the bona fides of the scheme he used, the case is practically at an end. None of the court has any further questions to ask, since we do not propose to inquire into this last shocking episode. Have you yourself, Monsieur de la Gaucheterie, anything more that you wish to say? Aimag lifted his head from his hand and stood up. Oh, nothing, thank you, mon général. And then I declare the case closed, and I will ask all present to withdraw while the court deliberates. They followed the orderly to a little room, opening off the hall. Directly the door was closed, Colonel Richard went up to Aimag. Oh, I'm more horrified than I can say at hearing of your treatment at Agbel, he said, in a voice which indeed showed his strong emotion. And as for this last outrage, the torture, I have no words for it. Aimag flushed. Oh, that was nothing, and I had no intention whatever of having it brought out in court. I never dreamt of such a thing. Laurent could not bear the sensation of estrangement, and at this juncture, too, a moment longer, he turned round, a mag, he began imploringly. But the imperialist had not finished. I have been deeply shocked also to hear in detail what my own action led to. Had I not surrendered that letter? And if I, still more, had not taken it back to the wood, put in de Fresne. Gentlemen, said Monsieur Perelet, also intervening, and plucking the last two speakers by the arm. I think that if Monsieur de la Rochetegie, you will remember that he has been very ill, were to sit down quietly now. Of course, said Colonel Richard instantly, and he and de Fresne withdrew themselves, while Monsieur Pigolet shepherded his ex-patient to a bench in the corner, and sat down in silence beside him, with a hand on his wrist. Near Laurent, Colonel Richard and de Fresne were now commenting optimistically on Don Digny's extraordinarily opportune appearance. But Laurent had no eyes for anyone save a mag, 
sitting there silent with closed eyes, his head against the wall. His face was like a cameo, as drained of color and as passionless, too. He gave the impression of having passed beyond suspense, but of being nearly slain with fatigue. But as the offender miserably studied him, the closed eyes opened. Aimag looked across at him and smiled. Then he made a little motion with his other hand. Laurent went, hesitatingly, and sat down by him, and the guardian on the other side not attempting to say him nay. And though Aimag did not stir, and had shut his eyes again, the hand which had beckoned Laurent there closed on his. He was forgiven, without a word. And in the odd silence which now fell on all of them, he, holding that hand, had to force himself to realize that this was the crisis, the dividing line, and that Amag's whole future hung on what those men in there. How could he so flippantly have called them the Nine Muses, were deciding. They could not now find him guilty, after M. Dondigny's evidence. But suppose they were not sufficiently agreed and to acquit him. And there was Fouquier Tinville and that stubborn de Noirieux. Oh, that was inconceivable. A fit of bitter revolt seized him. Why had Aimag submitted himself into their hands, as if their opinion mattered? But it did matter now. Involuntarily, he clutched the cold hand tighter. De Fresne had begun to walk nervously up and down, but Colonel Richard was still leaning against the wall with his arms folded. The doctor was watching Aimag attentively. Steps outside, the orderly at last. There was nothing to be learnt from his face. If you will come back now, gentlemen, their hands fell apart. Aimag got up instantly. Without a look, even at Laurent, he walked to the door, and the others followed him in silence. It came to Laurent, as they went through, that by the position of the sword on the table, they would know his fate. So, not very sensibly, he shut his eyes for a second. Then the blood rushed to his head. The hilt of Aimag's sword was towards him. Somehow he was back in his place, standing as they all were, his attention divided between the president risen to address the acquitted and Aimag's motionless figure in front of him. Why had the old Chouan put on spectacles to deliver judgment, since he was looking over, not through them? His voice came, relieved and kindly. I have great pleasure in announcing to you Monsieur de la Gaucheterie, and that the court unanimously finds you innocent of the slightest intention of treachery when you sent your subordinate's letter to the imperialists, and holds that you had sufficient grounds for considering your preconceived plan feasible. It does not, therefore, blame you, in the exceptional circumstances, for attempting to carry it out. For your efforts to prevent the disaster, and your whole conduct afterwards, we have nothing but praise and not least for your courage in voluntarily submitting to a very painful ordeal. And, if you will come forward, monsieur, I shall most gladly restore to you your sword, untarnished. There was an uncontrollable burst of applause from the audience, through which Laurent heard Monsieur Perillet beside him sniffing audibly. 
Aymar moved, took two steps forward, and then put his hand to his head and hesitated. Logon was conscious of a violent nudge from Monsieur Pigalet and his voice saying in a loud whisper, I'll go with him. He's pretty well finished. So he took Loiselog by the arm from behind and stared him forward to the dais and was thankful to see that the president, realizing the state of affairs, was not waiting for him to mount the steps to the table, but was coming round to the top of them with a sword. And here, with a word or two of congratulation, he laid the weapon in its owner's hands. Aymar lifted it to his lips, tried to say something, and then, clutching it to his breast, reeled suddenly backwards into the arms of Laurent and Dutrompley, who, already on the watch, had jumped down from his place at the end of the table. He was indeed finished, but they kept him on his feet until, someone producing a chair, they lowered him into it, and Laurent, kneeling by him with his arm round him, disengaged the sword from his grasp. In another moment, Monsieur Pigalet was bending over him. Oh, give him time, gentlemen. How oh, unfit for this. A great strain. But he will be himself again in a little. Nevertheless, he had thrust his hand inside the breast of Imac's uniform. A water? Yes, thank you. And Imac's head lay against Laurent's shoulder. And Laurent, who rather thought he was crying himself and didn't care, who was battling with a most unseasonable desire to kiss it there before everyone, and would very likely have succumbed, only that he was sure Aymar had not quite lost consciousness. Meanwhile, the court had broken up into little groups. The audience, though deeply interested and disposed to quit their seats, kept their distance. And in a short while, after a period of being finally confused at what had happened, Aymar had recovered and stood up, and Laurent, with shaking fingers, fastened on his sword. He and no other. No other save he had even touched it. And nursing that smaller joy amid the greater, he stood away watching the little scene of congratulation that ensued, members of the court and of the audience alike, crowding round that central figure to shake hands. So he witnessed the long grip, the long wordless look, which Dutrompley gave. Last of all came Dondigny, with that fine smile, and said something in a low voice which Laurent could not catch. But he saw Aymar flush, and knew that it was with pleasure. But he did hear the general say, And then, you will give me the pleasure of your company at supper tonight, as a proof that you bear me no ill will, Monsieur de la Gorgeterie. I would suggest, in order to spare you the fatigue of the return journey from Carmelven, where I am staying, that you spend the night at my chateau, and I shall give myself the privilege of sending the carriage for you. I should like, also, he went on, to extend the invitation to your friend, Monsieur de Courtemag, whose acquaintance I am anxious to make. Aymar turned and beckoned, and Laurent, as he was presented, braced himself for the ignominy of confessing that he was not in a position to accept this glorious invitation. Aymar would not remember his disability, but what was he saying? I am afraid, General, and that Monsieur de Courtemag will be unable to have the honour of supping with you, unless you can put in a word for him in the proper quarter. I regret to say that he is under arrest. 
Monsieur Dondigny's keen gaze turned on the culprit. Oh, dear me, what for? Because, said Imag, half smiling. He had a difference of opinion with an officer of Monsieur de Magadel's last night, and as the officer is in bed this morning, and likely to remain there. Oh, I see, said the Chevalier Dondigny with a twinkle. Oh, I think that can be arranged, Monsieur de la Gaucheterie. Yes, I can take that on myself. Our little festival would be very incomplete without Monsieur de Courtemag. Of course, he will honor me by staying the night also. He turned directly to Laurent. Oh, I think I can guess what the difference of opinion was about, can I not? And as Laurent did not answer, he put his hand for a moment on his shoulder and gave it a little pressure after which he asked Aymar if he would be so obliging as to make him acquainted with Colonel Richard, with whose general he had been having some correspondence about combining to keep the unnecessary Prussians out of Brittany. So Aymar crossed the hall with him. Meanwhile, Monsieur Pagelet had requested de Fresne to procure a carriage. We will drive him home, he said to Laurent, and drawing him aside. Oh, my dear boy, that ramrod story! and I had deserted him. You had no doctor for those burns. There were tears in the little man's eyes. Oh, come, responded Laurent. Madame Allard and I did not do so badly, doctor. I shall set up in your line some day. He spoke thus hilariously, because, really, his eyes were in much the same state as Monsieur Pigolet's. It was so wonderful, so adorable of a mag in the midst of his own triumph and relief, and to remember his plight, and to be collected enough to seize the one available opportunity of getting him out of it. De Fresne here came back and reported that there was a large and enthusiastic crowd gathered about the steps outside. There's no doubt, he added, in a satisfied tone, that the finding of the court is popular. As he said it, Dondigny, Colonel Richard and Aymar all returned their way, talking together. I should be most willing, monsieur, came the imperialist's voice. If we combine, foes that we have been, it could be done. We are all Frenchmen. I know that General Lamarck is most anxious to do it. We will enlist Loiselard also in the task, said General Dondigny. But I, I have no men now, said Aymar, colouring. You have what I once wished you, monsieur, if you remember. Your sword again, said Colonel Richard. Oh, it's your brains, your advice, that I want, monsieur de la Gorgeterie, said the royalist. It will be a matter of arrangement with our allies, after we have come to an understanding with our compatriots. We can talk about it this evening. And if only you had the famous Chactier back, we could try the effects of that on the Prussians. Oh, but I have got it back confessed a mag, and it is mended, and I am wearing it at this moment. It is at your service. Mended, eh? said Dondigny. How magically, no doubt. Imag suddenly wheeled round and put his hand on Laurent's shoulder. Yes, magically, he said. He mended it, like a good many other things. His smile pretty well finished, Laurent. To cover his confusion, he went out to the steps. His appearance was a signal for a burst of cheering, which very quickly drove him in again. The crowd was much larger and more expectant than he had realized.
He clutched a mat, just turning away from Dutrompley by the arm. How can you hear them? he asked. In England, you know. We should take the horses out and drag the carriage. I wonder if Monsieur de Fresne and Pagalet are game. I am, observed the little doctor gaily, but a mag, beginning to move rather unwillingly towards the door, observed that for nothing on earth would he trust himself behind Logon as a horse in his present frame of mind. You might take the bit between your teeth and bolt again, he added, with a meaning smile. And he put a hand on the culprit's shoulder and gave him a little shake. Oh, I don't believe you are an atom penitent, either. And what was so unpardonable, Laurent, was the inexactitude. I told you so many times that it was not red-hot. Laurent choked back a queer sound. Hey, Mac, you really are impayable. What's the matter? Amag had caught sight of the crowd. Oh, must I go through that? I would rather face a ramrod again. I'm afraid you must, said Laurent, and seeing that de Fresne and Monsieur Pigalet and Dutremblay were close behind Loiseleur, he darted down the steps to open the carriage door. So, without meaning to, but with delight, he saw the picture he should unendingly possess for his own. Amag coming down the steps after his ordeal, neither triumphant nor abashed, but just his own quiet and gallant self. He had so much eyes only for that descending figure in its beautiful and unconscious perfection of poise that it was not till afterwards that there came to him out of memory the stored scraps he had heard from the populace as he waited there, among people who wanted to shake hands with him, too, which rather bored him. How oh, he would not tell. He saved Monsieur de Tremblay. How oh, that's Monsieur de Tremblay himself. How oh, they say he was actually tortured. Oh, how pale he looks. I knew a man who was with him in the Moulin Brûlé. And the only other actual visual impression he retained, that of a middle-aged Breton with a firelock slung across his goatskin, reverently removing his broad-brimmed hat as a mag passed. The Chouan who had spat at him yesterday. Thirteen. Laurent was in crazy spirits during the meal which followed at Madame Leblanc's. Particularly did the good Monsieur Pigalet appreciate his sallies, and even de Fresne, who made the fourth, relaxed into amusement. I shall no longer be a guest at that disgusting convent, and tonight we shall both be Monsieur Dantigny's prisoners. How do you imagine, Aimac, that old de Noirlieu will be there? A prisoner, too. Oh, I wish Guiton Cadet could be, as a footman. I shall go and serenade him with the news this afternoon, and I shall write to Rigaud, and he can tell them all at Arbel. Oh, I forgot, Arbel is evacuated. And, in any case, observed a mag, and they would only say that St. Sebastian. Laurent dropped his knife and fork. His jaw dropped also. Oh, where on earth? I always hoped that you never knew. Oh, my dear Laurent, replied Loiselurg, smiling. Your walks on the terrace did not give you the monopoly of the bon mot of Arbel. I also had the privilege of hearing them during my one visit to the library. Of course, said Laurent, when he had got over this, it was really Monsieur Pigalet who turned the scale, 
not Monsieur Dondigny at all. Imagine being able to hurl about missiles like Echimosis and Hemorrhage. I'm considering adopting the first as an oath. I think, observed Monsieur Picolet, wiping his eyes, for his was not an exacting sense of humor. That you had better go and work this off outside, my boy. I cannot allow you to remain in the house, because a mag, he made no bones about the Christian name, is going to bed this afternoon, so as to be in trim for the evening. So, a little later, a mag, lying on his bed, looked up at the young man and the old, and remarked that they were both of them nothing but tyrants at bottom, and that when they got together, one was simply crushed. Not, he added, shutting his eyes, and that the process is altogether repugnant. How oh, I wish, my poor boy, said Monsieur Pigalet softly, and that I'd been there to tyrannize over this. And he gently drew his hand down his right arm. Before Aimard could answer, he had left the little room. Laurent stood a moment longer, and then he suddenly dropped on his knees and hid his face against the bed. Oh, Aimard, at last, at last. Aimard gave a long, deep, tired sigh. Oh, it was wonderful. And his coming like that, a miracle. You were wonderful, said Laurent unsteadily. And perhaps that evening was the most wonderful of all. No more efficacious method of rehabilitation could probably have been devised than that supper with General Dondigny and his staff, where Loiselag was plainly the guest of the evening, and where yet the host, with exquisite tact, so arranged matters that it seemed the most natural thing in the world that he should be there, and not a festivity with an object. And in Laurent's eyes, the unanswering patience, courage, and dignity which Aimag had displayed throughout the inquiry, against the perpetual odds both of bodily weakness and of circumstance, found here something of their fitting recognition. In the seventh heaven himself, he thought that, despite the marks of strain, of illness, and of fatigue, there was no one in the room, except possibly Monsieur Dondigny himself, who could hold a candle to him for distinction. And there were moments when he looked as he had done before the catastrophe, when he might indeed have been the Aimag of the Paris reception. But he would never be quite the same again. And to Laurent, at least, he was even more admirable. Yes, he had come through the sombre forest at last. He had everything back again now. All but one thing, probably to him the most precious of all. Very late that night, after the guests had dispersed, Laurent went into the room near his, which had been assigned to his friend. It was a room so large that two candles had little effect on it, but the moon was streaming in also through the uncurtained window. And across the majestic four-poster he perceived, by the gleam of his shirt in the moonlight, and that Aimard was sitting on the window-seat, partially undressed. But his head was down upon his arms on the sill, Laurent hesitated. He had not meant to intrude on this. And perhaps, however, he was asleep. Not liking to turn back, either, he went slowly on past the column of the bed, and by the time he had got round the foot, Loiselag had lifted his head and was looking at him with a little smile. Not in bed, Laurent, 
he asked lightly. And you? retorted Laurent. How think of what Monsieur Pegalet would say after such a day? Oh, it must be about two in the morning, I fancy. Oh, it has been an evening, certainly. Did you enjoy it? Oh, what do you suppose? inquired Laurent. Oh, but, a mad, it was indescribably mean of you to tell them about that silly dungeon and my going back for Monsieur Pegalet. Oh, you must have known that I was trying to stop you. Aimag made no reply. His smile, however, was sufficient commentary. Oh, confound you, cried Lucon, laughing. Well, now you know what it feels like, and I got it over quickly. Oh, really, Aimag, I had no idea you were so vindictive. Oh, I am a mine of evil qualities, announced Aimag. You ought to know that from Arbel. How long ago that seems now. You remind me, standing there with your candle, Laurent, of further back still, of the night I spent under your roof in Devonshire, centuries ago, when you were so polite. You hoped I would sleep well, which I did. And I could not believe I was not dreaming, and to have you there. It was then I saw the swan and the motto on your watch. And a mag, his voice shook a trifle, and he sat down suddenly on the window seat. Your motto is true. You are sans tache. You always have been. Aimac shook his head, smiling a little sadly. But he looked at him with great affection. Now, if ever, was the chance to say something about Madame de Villecresne. How pleased they will be at Cecini, remarked the diplomatist, looking carefully out of the window. And the observation sounded inane to him directly he had uttered it, particularly as Aimag made no reply. It was no use trying to work round tactfully to the subject, and there was always the picture of Madame de Villecresne eating her heart out there, now that she was enlightened. Besides, what of Aimag's own tell-tale attitude when he came in? So he next said boldly, I suppose you will go home now. No. I'm not going home, replied Aimag, and he also looked out of the window. After a moment he turned his head. His pallor was accentuated almost to ghastliness in the moonlight. Oh, I cannot very well do so. I told my cousin, when I wrote about the inquiry, that whether I were cleared or no, I should not come back, and that I hoped she would continue to make Cecine her home. I should not trouble her. Laurent was now terribly bothered. What was the right thing to do? Oh, but don't you think, he began, and then floundered desperately. Hey, Mag, I think I ought to tell you. Yet, I don't know whether I had better... I, I really wish you would advise me whether to tell you. And unconscious of the absurdity he was uttering, he caught hold of a Mag's coat, which lay on the window seat, and began to ring a button round and round. A little smile dawned on Aimag's mouth as he looked at his occupation. Better tell me, before you have them all off. I... I talked to Madame de Villecresne after you left. I... I had no choice. I had to make things clear. She... she had not understood, Aimag. She really had not. Sometimes, said Imag very slowly, and dropping out each word separately. I, 
have hoped that since. Yes, responded Laurent eagerly. You see, when you explained to her, there was so little time. It was so sudden, all so horrible, and you never do yourself justice. So I... She asked me, you know, and I could not go away like that before she did understand. I explained. So you explained, repeated his friend. That was like you, Laurent. He put his hand abruptly to his throat, got up with equal abruptness, and walked away out of the wash of moonlight. He had told him, now that Imag knew that she knew the truth, and now, surely. Imag reappeared with startling suddenness, like a ghost. Hadn't we better go to bed, he said, in a dry voice. Laurent jumped up and held out his hands to the ghost. Amag, hey, if you blame me. Blame you? How could you think such a thing? Don't I know that you would make out a case for me a thousand times better than I could myself, and that you would do it so that it must be believed, if any truth in this world is to be believed. And that is just why. Never mind. Why talk of it tonight? Let us go to bed. But Laurent had laid hold of him. Amag, I'm so stupid. For pity's sake, tell me what you mean. Why, answered Amag, very quietly standing still in his grip. Just this. She understands now, and it has made no difference. Laurent loosed him, aghast. By telling him what he had done, he had taken away his friend's last hope. He dropped back onto the window seat. Amag sat down there, too, and leant his head against a mullion. You see, he said evenly, that this is a just inference, for she's had plenty of time to write to me, even if it were only to wish me good success. And I've not had a word. Or she cannot be ill, or my grandmother would have mentioned it. And so it is not my ineradicable pride, as you call it, Laurent. I'm certain that you put things better for me than I could ever have done myself. Another debt, of the deepest it might have been, of all I owe you. But it only shows that she has washed her hands of me. I dare say she has cause. The moonlight enshrined the two silent figures. Amag had his chin cupped on his hand, as he looked out of the window into the warm night. But before Laurent's eyes was the rose garden at Cécigne, and the little white-clad figure, and the misty eyes, and the trembling voice. Yet nothing had come of that emotion, after all. Amag turned at last and put a hand on his. Oh, my dear Laurent, one cannot have everything. And don't, oh, don't look like that. It is not for me to show myself ungrateful for this wonderful day. Oh, I don't think that I quite realize myself yet, and that I'm no longer an outcast, and that must be my excuse. Laurent gripped the hand very hard. I knew the luck would turn, he observed rather huskily. No one could go on having such appalling bad fortune as you, since you lost the Chactier. Oh, I suppose, said Amag softly, that it has never occurred to you in your imaginative moments. No, I'm certain it is not, 
and that all the time I had something a thousand times better than the Shaktiyi, a piece of such transcendent good fortune, and that I might well spend the rest of my life thanking God for it. And what do you mean? exclaimed Lugum. No, certainly it is not. Now still, of course, you were very lucky in having an opponent of the type of Colonel Richard, and again in coming across him, as you did, at... He stopped, because Aymac was gently shaking him. How is it nature or art, Laurent, that has made you so thick-headed? You don't know what I mean? Well, go and stand in front of your looking-glass, and perhaps it will dawn upon you. But it dawned then and there, for as he stared at him, Laurent slowly began to turn crimson. End of section 31